Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the modern day, the faith of Islam has had an uneasy relationship with the West. But look beyond the news about fundamentalism and violence. A generational shift is underway that will help to resolve cultural tensions. And our Russia editor has a bit of a side gig, helping out one of the world's most notable playwrights, We talk about linguistics, consciousness, journalism, and ultimately, truth. But first... Seven parliamentarians from Britain's Labour Party have announced that they will be leaving their colleagues. This has been a very difficult painful but necessary decision. They're unhappy with the hard left leanings of the party's leader, Jeremy Corbyn. They insist Labour has failed to root out anti-Semitism and they don't like the party's position on Brexit. Mr Corbyn responded on Twitter saying he was disappointed the group of seven broke away. The MPs aren't forming a new party, but they will be separate, calling themselves the independent group. The main mood in the room was one, a sense of, finally, because th- this had been coming for a long time. Every single person, every every MP there had been a long-term critic of Jeremy Corbyn, so something like this had been expected for a while. Our political correspondent, Duncan Robinson, was at the conference where they announced their departure. The MPs all come from a, a relatively similar part of the party. They're all relatively Blairite. They're from the right of the, the Labour Party. They're all very pro-EU. They've all been deeply critical of Jeremy Corbyn's handling of various issues, whether it's his his foreign policy or whether it's his handling of anti-Semitism in the party, which is a real, real issue for these MPs and for a lot of other MPs in the party. Duncan, what, what do you think that these defectors think they will achieve with this? I think the main thing they want to achieve is to stop Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister. Fundamentally, this is a man they think is not up to the job and they queued up to criticize him uh, as a man and as a politician. This isn't the first time centrist MPs have quit the Labour Party. In 1981, the so-called Gang of Four, unhappy with Labour's far-left policies, split to form the Social Democratic Party. The point about this new party is that it is a party which for the first time in Britain, in the period since the war, is breaking with any of the major interest groups and trying to put the interests of the country first ahead of those other interests. So will the gamble of the Magnificent Seven pay off? I think for this breakaway group, it's not just a tactical crusade. It really is a moral one, too. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist and one of our most tireless political junkies. In Jeremy Corbyn and his hard-left outlook, they see someone who's not just ill-advised or wrong in political terms. They think this has fed through 
to a failure to tackle anti-Semitism in the party. They think it has fed through to a kind of weaponizing of Brexit without coming to a settled conclusion about it. So I think they really do feel that they have an ethical argument as well as a tactical one. So, Anne, on this charge of uh, of anti-Semitism in the party, what has the party been doing about the problem so far? Why hasn't that been enough for these critics? For this group, it just clearly hasn't been enough because it hasn't tackled the issue of what they think the root of it is, which is a tolerance of a form of anti-Semitism, which often starts with a particular worldview, which has Israel very much in its sights, but they claim goes further and actually becomes outright anti-Semitism. So one of the main defectors is Luciana Berger, a Jewish MP in the Northwest in Liverpool. And she says the party has taken no steps to tackle what she calls an institutionally anti-Semitic outlook. She feels she's been at the sharp end of that. So she is then the sort of the, the ringleader of this breakaway group? No, actually, she isn't the de facto leader, although they say at the moment that they don't need a leader. They're a, a grouping in parliament, but everything has a leader in politics. And really, the leader figure is Chuka Umana. He is a high-profile advocate of a second Brexit referendum. He's a very good media performer. He's a London MP. He's black British. So he stands out uh, in the overwhelmingly white world of Westminster. He ran for the leadership, not very successfully, it must be said, against Jeremy Corbyn. So he's more used to being in the firing line. And so how do you reckon that will go? How influential do you think this new group will be? I think it will be very influential in that it brings to a head an argument that has boiled in the Labour Party since Jeremy Corbyn became leader. How acceptable is his leadership to moderates? This group of people, all of whom are respected MPs, are saying no. Can they bring others with them? Well, Jason, I think that's a bit less clear. They all have broadly the same views. They're all in favour of a second referendum. If you look to other disruptions in politics, you often have to put together an alliance of people who aren't the same but feel so strongly about one thing that they're prepared to come together. Could they reach out to the Conservative Party? Still unproven. It feels very Labour in terms of what it's talking about at the moment. But I think it will have some form of impact. And we see a lot from the history of politics and splits. It's not always that it achieves what it sets out to do, but it sets off a ripple effect. In in the wake of this announcement, a lot of people have been talking about uh, uh, another instance of defections from the Labour towards a, a new centre um, in, the, in the 1980s. Do you think there are useful parallels there? I think there are very useful parallels. I think there are warnings and some differences. It was 1981, the so-called Gang of Four, who were unhappy with the far-left policies of the leadership, remind you of anything, split off to form something called the Social Democratic Party. It did very well for a while, and then it didn't. And I think one of the lessons of that is that you have to go out there very quickly and start to fight and win elections. And thanks for joining us. Pleasure as always. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. 
That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Islam frightens many in the West. Jihadists kill in the name of religion. Muslim conservatives believe it allows them to force their daughters to marry. When asked, Westerners say that Islam is the religion they least want their neighbors to follow. But there are 26 million Muslims in Europe, excluding Turkey and Russia, and in the United States, around three and a half million. Islam is in the West to stay. Our special report in this week's edition of The Economist examines how this traditionally conservative religion is adapting, finding its way in open liberal democracies. Islam is undergoing a transformation that's little noticed in the West, a change that's doing more than any government initiative to tame the threat posed by Islamic extremism. There's a very interesting process that has taken place in Islam in the West over the decades. Anton LaGuardia is our deputy foreign editor. You can broadly categorize it in terms of generations. The first generation of migrants who came at the end of the war, the second generation felt their parents' Islam didn't have anything to do with them. They didn't probably understand the language, uh, yet they didn't feel entirely rooted in the host countries. And a small minority of those took to violence. And it is striking how many of the jihadist attacks are perpetrated by people who are in the second generation. And now you have the rise of a third generation who don't feel the need to rebel and feel more willing to engage with their host societies and their institutions. Islam may be adapting in the West, but conservative Islamic beliefs are harder to change. In particular, the roles and rights of men versus those of women are at the heart of how Western views of Islam are shaped. I've never had any other identity, any political affiliation other than American. This is the land I was born in. This is the land I grew up. Yasir Qadi is America's best-known Muslim preacher. A theologian based in Memphis, he believes it's possible to be a faithful Muslim in a liberal democracy. He says that's true even when it comes to issues of gender. There's no question that me having been born and raised in America is going to shape the way I view the role of men and women because that's the society I was born into. You know, you cannot expect a Muslim born and raised in Pakistan and Karachi to be fully cognizant of how to live in a liberal democracy, to gender roles. They're not really exposed to these issues. So there is this cultural awareness of an American Muslim and a British Muslim who meet. They'll actually have a lot more in common than a Pakistani American with an actual Pakistani back home. So that is something that we call a Western Islamic identity. Hi, I'm Muna. I'm a black British Muslim. I live in London, but grew up in Yorkshire. Like Mr. Qadi, Muna Ahmed, whose family originates from Somaliland, has only ever known a Western way of life. My relationship with Islam is slightly different to my parents and my grandparents because they're far more practicing than I am. I miss prayers, I don't pray all the time, I don't always go to the mosque, I don't always wear a headscarf, but none of these things make me a bad person or a bad Muslim. I posted a video on Facebook about how the tabloids vilify Muslims. The first person to comment was one of my childhood friends. And she said, yeah, we need these people out of our country, Muslims in general. 
and I was like well do you have more of a right to be in this country than I do me and you grew up together we went to the same school we went to each other's birthday parties but yet again you feel like you have more of a right in this country than I do and she replied with you also have blood on your hands Fear of terrorism and the rise of anti-immigrant populism have led governments in the West to try to control Muslims. President Donald Trump has banned travelers from some Muslim-majority countries. France and other states have banned head or face coverings. Anton LaGuardia says such policies are counterproductive. I think that there's a danger of pushing Muslims back into their communities, of isolating, stigmatizing them. You know, ultimately, fighting against extremism is to identify those who are violent and potentially violent within communities. So you need the cooperation of communities to help you identify who is likely to become dangerous. So you need to maintain consent. I started questioning my own identity. So I decided to go to Africa to search for my own roots, to try and see where I actually belong. You know, I felt like I didn't belong in England anymore. I think... Once I got to Somaliland, I realised that I was, like, completely different to everybody in Africa. I completely stood out. Some of the people that lived there were like, we know you're not from here simply by the way you walk. (laughs) When I went to Africa, I realised I'm actually a Yorkshire girl. I'm from Yorkshire, I'm British. And no matter how much I try, I can't get away from that and that's who I am and that's made me realise that I shouldn't feel out of place and I shouldn't let anyone make me feel like I don't belong because I do. It is undoubtedly true that we're in an age of populist politics, of identity politics and Muslims I think in some ways provide a sort of a visible group for which because of the experience of terrorism to whom populists can attach a reason to fear. There is some good news, as we've said, because attitudes among Muslims is changing. And I think there's perhaps an appreciation that, or there should be an appreciation that Islam plays much more of a role in sort of Western history and identity than a lot of schools would acknowledge. I think, you know, we're going through, through a bad phase. I think there is more Islamophobia, but I think there is also the potential for greater understanding. Anton LaGuardia, our Deputy Foreign Editor. You can read our special report, Islam and the West, in this week's edition of The Economist. For most of his waking hours, Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia editor. So there we are in a wintry Moscow, sitting on the stage of the Ramt Theatre, the Russian Youth Theatre. And we're sitting there with Tom Stoppard. That's Sir Tom Stoppard, a British playwright whose award-gathering career spans six decades. His play, The Heart Problem, is being put on. Actors are doing their scenes, and then after each scene they come up. You know, so much is not in the words. So much is in this chemistry between the actors and their playwright. There is this extraordinary connection happening. Arkady was there soaking up the chemistry because he has a bit of a hobby. And I was there because I was very fortunate to have translated that play, The Hard Problem, into Russian. And I was there in the rehearsal, adjusting the text, almost like a tailor does. You know, you try on a suit and say, OK, well, here it pinches a bit, so let's make it a bit wider. And this sentence needs to have a bit of breathing space. 
Arkady's tailor-fit translations are more than just tinkering with grammar. What he's really doing is tailoring the idea from the playwright's mind through to the actor's delivery. The intellectual content of what you're talking about is your given. And the way you think and speak and live is your, it's your freedom to do anything you want to do. So the play deals with a hard problem, which is the problem of consciousness and the difference between the consciousness and the brain. We know a computer can calculate, but can a machine really think? You know, if a machine can play chess, does it mind losing? I mean, that, that, that is essentially the, the problem of consciousness. And it's told through a very human story. There is a young woman who had given up her child for adoption when she was 15, and now, years later, she gets to meet... Uh, child. It's exactly that balance of head and heart that draws people to Mr. Stoppard's plays. These are, in some ways, intellectual plays. They're very clever. You really have a sense of thought and thinking as action. At the same time, they're not just intellectual. They are grounded in in reality. What I mean by reality, they're grounded in, in the truth of emotion and feeling. Um, as I say every year, every decade... Theatre is a storytelling form, it's a storytelling art form, and you tell the story. It's clearly important to Mr. Stoppard that the storytelling plays out with extraordinary precision. He's like a, you know, clockmaster. Every scene has its own timing, everything is very precise and the mechanism works. Doing translations, and translating Mr. Stoppard's plays in particular, is demanding stuff the language, the characters, the high-minded themes and the clockwork timing. That's what keeps Arcadi interested. Some people, I suppose, love doing crosswords, you know, puzzles. It's not that different in some ways. Um, I'm not saying it's very easy. It's, it's not very easy. And it can be sometimes quite torturous in the same way as you can't think of a word in a, in a puzzle. The aim, Arcadi says, is to carry a new and culturally different audience to the same emotional and intellectual place. I think it was uh, a great Russian poet, Boris Pasternak, who translated Shakespeare, who once said, a translator makes the same journey the author has made before him. You sort of retrace the steps. Otherwise, you can't do it. It has to be emotionally charged. It has to be filled with the same sense of truth and feeling because it's the same with journalism. When we write, it's not just the information we convey. We have to give a feeling. You can describe the same event with different words. And sometimes you can be true in facts, but you can be completely false in your choice of words. So Arcadi's hobby, in the end, isn't so different from his day job. Journalism, to me, is a translation. You translate experiences into text. You translate a different culture, in my case, Russian culture, Russian politics, uh, into a different language, not just linguistically, but culturally. I have to write about Russia in such a way that a reader can engage with it, can imagine it, can relate to it, most importantly, on whatever level. But I'm trying to translate a foreign picture, a foreign culture, into the language of this newspaper, The Economist, or British culture. I mean, that, that's what I've been doing all my life. That kind of translation gives readers and listeners and theatergoers a way in, whether it's into consciousness in a stop art play or into Russian's foreign policy. 
it's the complexity which interests me and which I'm trying to convey of ideas and lives and the smells and translating all that into a text, into an article or a book, and then suddenly find out that however local things are, they're also universal. And in fact, the more local they are, the easier they are to relate to and the more universal they are. By the time of the technical rehearsal, the actors have captured, are performing, a version of the truth, interpreted first by Mr. Stoppard and then by his trusted translator. I have no notes for you because I know that whatever you decide will be truthful. And we're all trying to be truthful. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.